Why does poor quality healthcare persist? Joining me on four questions, we have the wonderful Dave Evans, a lead economist at the World Bank. We're going to discuss what are the key impediments? Inadequate funding, healthcare workers' limited knowledge, or poor management practices. See, resource constraints are real, especially in Britain with an RNHS, but this isn't the only impediment. Across the world, increasing resources doesn't necessarily improve outcomes. For example, in Scotland and Wales, health funding increased over the 2000s with no improvement in waiting times. So, to explore what might work, Dave and others teamed up with the Nigerian Ministry of Health. They wanted to test two possible hypotheses and interventions, basic management training versus more detailed training with nine months of supervision. So to do this, they designed a randomized control trial. What did they find? And what did they learn from RCT? So Dave, tell me, what prompted this partnership with the Nigerian Ministry of Health? Thank you, Alice. With support from the Gates Foundation, the Development Impact Evaluation Group at the World Bank sat down with a wide range of actors in Nigeria's healthcare sector. And we talked about causal inference and impact evaluation and the role that it can play in informing good policymaking. And then we asked, given all this and given this support from the Gates Foundation, are there programs that you would like to evaluate? That if we evaluate them, they will help you make further decisions about what to expand, what to reduce, so over the course of a week, different teams worked with lots of different government partners to design potential evaluations, and then the government decided which evaluations to move forward. So with this evaluation, the government wanted to improve management. Mm. You know, we have inputs, we know that the, in the variation in inputs can't explain all the variation in health yeah. outcomes, like you mm. said. Um, we have a building and equipment and medication and what pulls all of that together? It's management. Mm -hmm. So the question is, is it possible to improve the management of these facilities so even without large recurring costs, we can still improve the quality? Okay, so what's the best way of working out what works? Why did you want to do a randomized control trial? So. Randomized control trials are one of the tools in the toolkit for figuring out what works. And so for listeners who may not be totally up to date, just briefly, to evaluate impact of a program, you want comparability between the group participating in a program and some group that isn't participating. Mm -hmm. And then we compare those two groups and we say, okay, well, the difference between those groups is probably the impact of this program. Right. Now, what randomization does is it makes sure or makes highly likely that the people in those two groups are virtually identical in the absence of the program. So then if we see difference after you've done some intervention, it's highly likely that, that is because of this program. So randomized control trials are very good at isolating the impact of a program from all kinds of other things that are going on in the economy and in society at large. When programs are rolling out, governments rarely have the capacity to immediately roll them out everywhere at once. Sure. Whether it's an education program, a health program, a tax program. So there's a natural opportunity often to randomly select where you roll those out first and compare those to the places that you haven't rolled it out yet. And what we see is that this can really give good evidence on whether a program works or not. So one great example of this is a randomized control trial that evaluated a cash transfer program in Central America. And what they found is that after that cash transfer program, consumption of people receiving it had not gone up at all. Yeah. And so it looked like a failure. Mm. But then, because it was a randomized controlled trial, they were able to look at other communities that were identical, except they weren't getting the program. In all of those communities, consumption had actually gone down ha. because the economy had 
gone significantly down. So the cash transfer program had a huge protective effect. So if you were just doing an intervention M&E and you just looked narrowly at your intervention of the cash transfers, you'd be like, oh, well, this doesn't work. Exactly. Even it's possible that even if you asked the people in these communities who are receiving the yeah. cash transfers, even if you, you did say, qualitative are you, research, yeah, yeah. are you better off? How do you feel? Mm -hmm. And they might say, no, I'm not better off because you know, some individual farmer yeah, in a rural absolutely. village yeah. is not necessarily aware of all the details yeah, of absolutely. national trends. Mm, okay, so I can see your case here that the RCT has strong internal validity. Let's get to the question of external validity a little bit later. So tell me, what did you find when you did this RCT in Nigeria on management practices? So the government of Nigeria tried two different programs. Yeah. One gave some basic training to each primary healthcare center, plus mm. some information on where the center was going wrong. The idea was maybe if you just help them identify the problems and give them a little bit of management training, that'll be enough. Mm. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. The second program gave that basic training and information, and then field officers spent nine months visiting these facilities to identify specific actionable areas of improvement and to set goals. Mm. So the whole objective here was to train the managers of these facilities in this goal setting and to see if over the course of nine months they'd learn these skills so that then they could carry that on themselves. So over the course of those nine months, many aspects of these facilities improved. These ranged from easy things like posting a list of patient rights, which we might argue is important, but it's easy, you post it once and then it's up there, uh, to other things that required regular effort. So the cleanliness of these facilities was significantly better, hand washing supplies were more available, things that require people to do continual yeah. effort to make sure that happens. And so this supervision and this support over the course of these nine months delivered real impacts. Okay, that sounds wonderful. So after the nine months, the supportive supervision stopped. And then I understand that you went back a year later to work out whether anything had changed. And what did you find? So the idea was that if what the supervision over those nine months had accomplished was training yeah. these facility leaders to change their practices, mm -hmm. then we would have seen sustained improvements yeah. a year later, mm -hmm. even after the supervision mm -hmm. start stopped. If not, if the supervision was really just playing a role of helping people to set these goals in that moment and not really changing knowledge, then we wouldn't see those results. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we saw. When we went back a year later, very few of those initial positive results had been sustained. The only ones that we really saw that had been sustained were things that didn't take any effort. So if they had put up a patient rights chart yeah, or a poster on hand washing, it was still there, so I'm glad people didn't tear yeah. down <laughs> these posters. But we didn't see evidence that this management skills had actually changed in an enduring way. So what you're saying is without the continued supportive supervision, just having the information isn't enough to motivate improved performance. That's exactly right. Okay, but let me, let's step back a bit. I mean, what do you think this RCT shows us? We now know that a consulting firm provided supportive supervision and that can improve healthcare. But how might the Nigerian government ensure that all its millions of managers provide supportive supervision? I mean, how do you motivate millions of managers to provide supportive supervision? Is it, is it training or supportive supervision? I mean, in a sense, this wasn't really a, a real world test of what works. Because it was bringing in a consultancy company for a relatively small group. I mean, this might not tell us what works at scale or how to do it or how the Nigerian government might come to do it. So there are two very important kinds of tests and yep. they're both essential. So there are what we would call efficacy tests mm. and effectiveness tests. So an efficacy test tells us under excellent implementation conditions, can this work? 
Now, the reason that's incredibly important, even if it's not at scale, is because it tells us whether we're solving the right problem, whether this intervention we're doing is actually solving the problem that we have. So for example, even this well-implemented item, not done at scale in a relatively small group of facilities, that told us that this management training by itself was not enough to do right. sustained, mm -hmm. uh, to make sustained improvements. So aren't we glad yeah. that the Nigerian government hadn't implemented that program everywhere in the country and was already doing this exact thing that we show that by itself is not sufficient to sustain? So the second kind of test is the effectiveness <coughs> test. The effectiveness test tells us whether that solution can be implemented at scale. If all we do are effectiveness tests, if all we do is test things at scale with government systems, then if it doesn't work, we actually don't know if the reason was because the implementation was poor or because we're actually failing to solve the key problem. So it is very important for us to do both efficacy tests and effectiveness tests. And the exciting thing is that Nowadays, there are many randomized control trials being done at both levels. So this was perhaps somewhere in between, right? It was in real clinics yeah. and it used field officers, but it was more tightly controlled. But at the same time, there are many randomized controlled trials being done about civil service reforms and countrywide reforms with, in health and education and, and things that really are being implemented at scale. But if we pretend that we can't learn anything from these efficacy tests, then we're pretending that we already know how to solve the problems, which in many cases we don't. No, absolutely, Dave. I mean, I'm, I'm not dismissing the, the value uh, of the RCT as part of a broader toolkit. Okay, but here's another question. If you had more funding to continue to look into this, what would you like to do to triangulate the RCT? So if I were going to propose, what are the next things we might try? Mm in this area to really get at this point. Yeah. It seemed like the, su the supervision was really key here. Mm. So could we, for example, take advantage of the fact that Nigeria has an existing health inspection system. They have inspectors who go to these facilities. Mm. Can we train these inspectors and create incentives mm. so that their job is to do more of what these supportive supervision field officers were doing. Mm. So they're going and they're identifying challenges and they're working with the facility to set goals, mm. right? So part of this intervention was a big assessment at the beginning. Mm. A lot of rural, a lot of rural Nigerian healthcare centers have the same problems. Yeah. There's enormous overlap. Mm. And so conceivably you could spend a lot less money on a significant assessment and spend a lot of those resources on trying to make your inspectors more effective. So that's something that I would test if I were doing this again. Right. Another element mm. that I think would be very interesting to test, we saw these changes these during the nine months of supervision without any teeth to this. So if you didn't improve, nobody got fired, mm. nobody got penalized, nothing happened. And yet people significantly improved their practice. Mm. So what if we introduced some sort of incentive, whether that's recognition that your facility has improved a lot, mm. or whether that is some more material incentive in the form of supplies or something else, um, would that significantly change? So here, here are you identifying things that you'd like to add to the RCT to test? So the first one mm. about trying to improve the inspection mm -hmm. system yeah. 
And uh, would you test that bar on I would, RCT? I would test that if I had the opportunity. I would test that with another RCT. Mm. So then we would. So what see I'm asking you, Dave, so these are all these are all fab ideas. But I'm saying, is there any way in which you conceive of something besides an RCT that could help you work out what's going on here? Whether it's you know in terms of improving the inspections, in terms of you know providing the incentives, the recognition, the respect, etc. Absolutely. So RCTs are one tool in the toolkit. Yep. Uh, Rachel Glenister from Diffid has talked very aptly mm -hmm. about you know, the variety of schools and mm -hmm. the tools in this toolkit, which include descriptive evidence, which in include uh, you know, careful contextual and institutional knowledge, as well as well-identified causal evidence, which is produced by randomized controlled trials and other uh, methods. So in this context, for example, one way to initially get at this would be to say, okay, well, let's go and find out which inspectors are doing more supportive supervision already mm. and see whether those inspectors are engaging more effectively with their mm. facilities. Mm. Now, there are a lot of challenges with drawing causal inferences from that, mm. but, it, but it certainly would be a way to give us a sense of whether it seems like this is uh, moving in the right direction. Can I offer an alternative? Yes. So, so with your RCT, you had your intervention and then you tried to observe its effects. So instead of looking at an intervention and exploring its effects, what I try to do is try to understand the causes of a particular change over time. So in Zambia, districts do better than others in improving maternal mortality, improving maternal health care. So what I did is I took three districts that had been decided that, uh, that the World Bank actually had thought were the same because it was using them as part of its randomized control trial. And I'd seen that over the past uh, 10 years, they had different, they were otherwise the same, but they had different indicators on maternal health care. Like one was really bad, the other two, one, the other was terrible, and the other was doing pretty well. So I tried to understand through ethnographic research why some were doing better than others. Speaking to nurses, speaking to healthcare workers, speaking to maternal health coordinators. So I didn't focus on any particular intervention, but I wanted to speak to them and say what they valued, what they found helpful. And, we'd, and I was trying to explore, so sort of through these conversations, I tried to explore the impact of maybe, was it civil society pressure, you know, bottom-up pressure, seeking reform, and they were like, no, civil society never, you know, people don't complain. If the nurse doesn't do outreach for a year, then no one will say anything. And I thought, okay, well, maybe it could be these workshops, these trainings, just like you looked at. So I went to trainings, and the problem was that, you know, they give the information, and then there's no incentive to necessarily implement it. There's no one checking up on whether you're doing it. You just take this information you know in Zambia they call them IGAs income generating activities because you get a per diem when you go to the workshop and even the the workshops often assume that you'll share that knowledge with your colleagues but their colleagues are very reluctant because they're like you've eaten you've taken that money through the per diems why would I want why would I share that want that information and then I thought uh, and so but what the nurses the healthcare workers and the maternal health coordinators were taught about is supportive supervision both in terms of being valued by their superiors and also in terms of being scrutinized. Like when they feel that the provincial level are coming to check up on them, then they want to make sure everything is right. And also, uh, and I really noticed this through the counterfactual, what happens when there isn't supportive supervision. You know, many nurses deep in the rural areas would talk about how they feel totally underappreciated and how no one cares what they're doing and it makes no difference to anyone and the, if the government doesn't notice my work, if the, no one values my work. Well, 
So I think it's fun for me as an ethnographer reading your work because for, for me, it's like, oh, someone's tested these two things I found, supportive supervision versus training. And I think the fun thing, well, for me, the fun thing about your paper is it's a big representative study highlighting the same dynamics and I think that through qualitative research we can highlight why the supportive supervision is so important in terms of the scrutiny and, and showing that their work is valued. So I think there's a real complementarity there. And I think with that, I think that complementary is really essential. You know, an RCT that's just done purely focused on the numbers, often we really don't understand the mechanisms. Mm -hmm. The best designed RCTs really try to understand the mechanisms, and the way they do that is by gathering a lot of data. And in the best cases, they gather a wide range of data, including qualitative data. And, uh, you know, for like you say, you know, you uncovered a richness um, with yours. Now, on the one hand, someone could say, well, are we really sure those three districts were identical except for these yeah. health you know, transitions? And are we really sure that people know the reason they do things? Yeah, absolutely. People might not be conscious of it. Yeah, exactly. But without that richness, we're left with, well, why did something happen? And so that's why there's real value in complementing these methods. And for example, this isn't the only role of qualitative data, but one of the really powerful things that qualitative data can help us to do is to formulate these hypotheses mm -hmm. and then when there's an opportunity test those in a quantitative uh, setting and see whether that bears out and in this case it's a wonderful example of where uh, the qualitative research uncovered a really key hypothesis which then even in a totally different context turned out to be really true and together those can inform policy that's sibling teamwork for you dave boom <laughs>